Episode 204, Population Health, One Step at a Time. Today, I speak with Virginia Gurley, MD, Chief Medical Officer and Senior VP over at Access Point Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Population health management, according to conventional wisdom, is typically an endeavor carried out with a big extensive patient encounter on the front end. This might be suboptimal. It's probably suboptimal for the patient to have multiple members of the care team, the nurse, the social worker, the health coach, all working on different interventions so that every time the patient talks to someone, they're speaking about a different topic. Finally, what's the point of having the patient tell you things you already know? Because that's what data is for. Today, I speak with Virginia Gurley, MD, who sets us straight on all of these points and more. Dr. Gurley is the CMO and Senior VP at Access Point Health. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Virginia Gurley, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. I want to spend a moment just talking about the difference between disease management and population health management, because maybe five years ago, everyone was talking about disease management, and then suddenly no one was. The in vogue term became population health management. Are these two terms synonyms? Do they refer to different things? Or has population health management in some respects subsumed disease management because it's better? Part of it is, I think, a rebranding by the industry. The traditional form of disease management has had a very condition-specific orientation and really expanding out the interventions and the intentions of the programs to address the needs of people with chronic diseases, especially in a more holistic way, I think are some of the hallmarks of what we now call population health management. But it certainly contains some of the original elements and intentions of disease management in terms of identifying individuals who have risk factors for uh, disease progression and helping reduce that risk through improved self-care management. So there are elements from the old, but there are, it definitely has modified over time. If we were just going to do kind of a case study at the patient level of maybe what an older school disease management or maybe a not so good population health management (laughs) program might look like for a patient. Sure. In the old or not so good version of disease management, there's an identification process of specific diseases and, and an intention to, once it's identified that someone has a condition or several conditions of interest, the five common chronics are diabetes, heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, asthma, and coronary artery disease. So those are the five common chronics identifying usually from administrative claims, those individuals who have those diagnoses and sometimes a stratification in terms of these are the people who are really costing a lot of money currently. These are people who are sort of mid-expense and then people who have the diagnosis but are not necessarily costing a lot of money and aren't utilizing a lot of services. And then with that identification, 
there's this very intensive process of trying to identify all of the other risk factors impacting that individual that you can't identify through your claims analysis. So one of the hallmarks of the traditional model is very, very extensive time, usually on the phone, sometimes face-to-face with an individual, collecting more data, self-reported data from the individual. So these interactions to do these additional risk assessments can often be 45 minutes or an hour. A lot of people don't have the time or patience to go through that long of an interview, even though they know someone is hopefully going to be helping them once they have that information. But the unfortunate thing is, so all of this data is collected and what's called a care plan is generated that may have 20 different interventions on it that would help reduce risk, but they're not prioritized. Or even if they are prioritized, the prospect of working through all of those risk factors is pretty overwhelming, not only for the program participant, but also for the care manager. Because, you know, how do you know when you've succeeded? You're supposed to fix 20 different things for this individual. And often the primary intervention is what I call information therapy, telling people why they should do this, like, If you have diabetes, why you should check your feet, or if you have a weight issue, why you should try to lose weight or increase your physical activity. And it's information about, well, how it's going to help you be healthier if you do these things. That in and of itself is also overwhelming for the program participant because a lot of people know they should lose weight. They've probably been told if they have diabetes, they should check their feet. And it's not for lack of knowing. More often, it's for lack of assistance with, well, how do I build a lifestyle routine to help me do these things? Who can help me tactically restructure how I take care of myself so that I can remove the barriers? So it's usually more about barriers and tactics than information and telling people what they should do. That was then. This Mm -hmm. is now. If we're really doing population health management effectively, how does what you just went through and described, how does that change? From the very beginning, it's different in that there's an orientation that there are very significant chronic care needs that can be identified from the administrative data. So you can tell if someone isn't getting in to be seen by appropriate specialists given their conditions or they're they're not going in on a regular basis to see their primary care provider or there you can tell that they're not refilling their medications at a frequency that would be consistent with taking their medications appropriately. So you can identify from the administrative data some really golden opportunities and just act on those. Then the analysis is not so much how many other risk factors can you identify through this lengthy interview with someone, but how do you prioritize which of the gaps that you can see in the administrative data are contributing the most to an individual's risk for having a disease progression kind of an event where they have an exacerbation, they end up in the hospital, and they have a a high-cost, high-stress event related to their conditions. And so the analysis is really on prioritizing what you can tell from the data. And then the interview is really about what are the barriers to the individual 
actually following through with that self-care behavior, whether or not it's getting in to see a nephrologist or taking their medications. The interventions are not related to why, trying to convince someone or trying to motivate someone to take care of themselves, but really more about what are the barriers and how can we help them mitigate or remove those barriers? Is it that they have financial issues, that they're having trouble affording their medications? Can we tie them to other resources that would help them uh, be able to pay for their medications? Is getting to see the specialists that they need to see related to transportation issues? And so getting much more, as I call it, tactical to remove those barriers and just focus on what you can see from the administrative data and what the individual tells you are the things that are in the way of them following through. In the old school original example, you had said something like 20 inventions would be bubbled to the surface. So it would almost be this like laundry list of things. And obviously giving someone a to-do list with 20 things on it is pretty overwhelming. How does the new way wherein you're looking at the data, how does that typically compare to the list of 20 things? Like, is it kind of the same thing, but the data will elevate what's most likely to result in an acute event? What we've found is that if you actually only work on one issue at a time, people's receptivity increases tremendously. It's like, oh, someone is going to help me figure out how to get reliable transportation so that I can go get in for my doctor appointments. That's all the interchange is about. And you can usually resolve that issue in about four to six contacts over about a four to eight week period. And there's an approach called brief action planning where you set very small goals All of those goals tie to one sort of meta goal, going to resolve this issue about difficulty with transportation to get in to see my doctor. And so then people really understand what the purpose of the calls are, and they're, they're very much more likely to engage and maintain that engagement. Whereas in the old model, there's no clear end in sight. People get a call every four to six to eight weeks from their care manager and they talk about whatever. Maybe they're working on real barriers, but there's there's no definition of success. In the new model, the success is broken up into small steps. Once that success has been achieved, then you can go to the next thing. Then you take that one problem. And again, over a four to six to eight week period, just really solve that one problem. How this might go down is as follows. Case manager starts talking to the patient, brings up something like, oh, you haven't had your, you know, the last time you had your A1C tested, it was out of control. So we need to make sure it's tested again. I noticed you had an appointment set up, but you didn't make it there. You know, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then the patient's like, oh, I can't get to the appointment. My kid works. They can't take me. Then all of a sudden, it's obvious to the case manager that the underlying difficulty here isn't anything. And I hesitate to use the term as simple as it's easily pinpointed to a transportation issue. So then that becomes the short term success metric. Yes, the intervention is it's all of the interventions are focused on removal of barriers, Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to instill motivation through information, which the research shows is not very effective. 
So they're not even talking about, oh, by the way, let's look at this video of your pancreas and and how the insulin works, that kind of thing, or the whole fear factor, like you need to stop smoking because otherwise these bad things are going to transpire. Like it's less about providing that sort of why and a little bit more about just stating, look, you need to do this. You know, most of the time, People already know that and they've already actually embraced that they need to. I know I need to take my medications, but right now I'm worried about not being able to pay my rent. Maslow's hierarchy tells us they're going to take care of their rent because shelter is more important than taking their medication. And if someone says, I don't understand why this medication is so important, then of course it's important to address that. It's very rare that people are questioning or don't even know the importance of their treatment recommendations from their provider where they're really needing support and help is in this barrier elimination. So you had mentioned earlier this less is more Mm -hmm. approach where instead of digging really deep and uncovering everything in one fell swoop, that the more common sense, practical maybe approach would be to there's going to be some very obvious issues that are immediately apparent. Is there a lack of understanding or agreement amongst payers that starting small or taking a more linear approach that you you solve one thing and then you turn style to something else and then you turn style to something else? Is there any controversy that that approach is going to net faster, maybe overall better results than one in which you study the problem fully before you begin? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the traditional approach is very much arises from the culture of healthcare professionals. I mean, many people who go into healthcare as a, you know, to serve as a nurse or a physician or what have you, allied health professional, there's very much a fix it mentality. And there's also an expectation that you're the professional, so you sort of need to be in the role of directing the patient. So it's almost a parent-child kind of a dynamic that's very, very prevalent, not only in population health management, disease management, but just in healthcare in general. And there's growing literature that shows that, and, and even just conceptually building the framework for us to start shifting our thinking toward you know, health is and healthcare services are co-produced. They're co-produced between a healthcare professional and the patient. And there really needs to be an engagement of equals. The way that the patient or the member, or the program participant becomes an equal in this interchange and this dialogue is to allow them to be at least shoulder to shoulder, if not in the lead on saying, this is what I need help with, rather than than the professional feeling like they have to be the one who's doing the diagnosis. We need to work on X, Y, and Z, rather than the patient saying, yeah, you know, I could really use some help with transportation, or yeah, I could really use some help with stress management because I've got financial issues and, and it's just, it's stressing me out and I really I'm exhausted by it and I don't have time to or energy to deal with these other things. So it's that co-production approach that is a very foreign mindset for healthcare professionals. 
It's this whole idea that why some are beginning to have an issue with the term patient engagement, because it implies something is being done to the patient, (laughs) as opposed to, as you said, co-producing the journey together. It's a very, very different mindset from what has historically been the the relationship between patients and healthcare professionals. And, And some patients really don't feel comfortable in that role. So that can be an intervention opportunity in and of itself is helping the person feel like it's okay to say, yeah, you're a healthcare professional, but really my issue is related to fear of side effects from my medications, that, that it's okay to share that they are afraid of, of certain aspects of, of their treatment plan or, or what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and I can certainly see that for someone to feel comfortable doing that, there would need to be a certain level of trust that would be inherent in the relationship. So generally speaking, if you're finger wagging, that is not super conducive to instilling a free exchange of information, let's just say. Yes. And because of that, what we've found is that using health coaches is often more successful in people actually being willing to share what the real issues are for them, as well as being able to engage them in that more co-production approach to removing or minimizing barriers. So we, we do use nurses for individuals who are medically very complex and their barrier issues are clinical. But if someone's barrier issues are more lifestyle, we would use a health coach. Or if someone's barrier issues are financial or accessing additional supplementary benefits, we would use a social worker. If someone's issues are more related to comorbidity with behavioral health diagnoses, we would use a behavioral health specialist. So really tailoring the skill set to what the individual's issues are, we've found been much, much more effective. And it it contributes not only because someone has the right skill sets to help with the, the issue at hand, but it also the alternative care manager types, the non-RN care types, care manager types are often not as prone to get into the fix it kind of mentality and the that parent-child kind of a relationship. Can you tell this right up front from the data set? You know, you look at the data and somebody's not going to their appointments. So there's some data point there, some signal that you can call, which would indicate that this person needs a behavioral scientist style, or, or does the person sort of change throughout the patient's care journey as their needs change? We actually rely on the individual. So we use the analytics to identify the opportunity. Then we reach out to that individual to confirm, because it is administrative data, it's not 100% accurate, but to confirm that uh, the gap we see in the data is is actually present for the individual. So we, we actually do use the interview to identify the appropriate skill set to help with the person's stated barrier. But that takes 10 minutes as opposed to the long, lengthy 45 to an hour long interview that the traditional model usually engages. Let's move on because what I really want to get to is, all right, so say I'm an insurance carrier right now or somebody who would 
be thinking, wow, based on what you've just said, I need to be doing this. There's clear benefits. So I want to roll this thing out. I have a data set. Maybe do we start there? Or like, what's the first step that someone who's looking to switch up from maybe a more disease management-y approach to what we're talking about here? What's the first thing that such an individual would need to be considering? Well, certainly the deployment of predictive modeling and predictive analytics to do that identification of those short-term utilization improvement and cost reduction opportunities from the data. That's certainly one of the, the key early steps. And you know, many payers certainly already have analytics in-house to identify chronic diseases, and they may to some extent be using predictive analytics to identify people who have risk for increased cost and and disease progression during the, the coming 12 months. But so that being sure that you have that analytics piece is the first step. The harder, more critical piece is having a workflow tool that allows you to deploy multiple disciplinaries of care managers and to help them stay focused on this is the one gap in their chronic care management that we're trying to close right now. And these are the different kinds of barriers that we have tools to help increase the ability for someone to adhere to that care or service need. So it's really that workflow piece and the cultural change that we discussed earlier in terms of moving away from the boil the ocean, you know, going to identify every risk under the sun and going to engage in that kind of directive professional approach, healthcare professional uh, mentality of telling someone what's wrong and and here's here's how I want you to fix it um, to that co-production. That's the bigger, harder piece. Okay. So what we've got first is deployment of predictive analytics or utilization maybe of predictive analytics. And I'm assuming that what you're primarily doing there is identifying who's going to be in the program. You're finding patients who are high risk and really need some intervention to happen now. Yes, who's going to be in the program is their high risk and what is the gap? Because there are some people who are high risk and they're expensive, but they're doing everything. You know, they're getting in to see their providers, they're taking their medications, they haven't had an admission, or if they have had an admission, they have good follow up with, you know, once they've been discharged home, they get medication reconciliation, et cetera. It's the people who are high risk and have these service gaps. Those are the people. So we differentiate high risk impactable because there are are service gaps and self-care gaps versus high risk not impactable because everything that they need to be doing, they and their care team are doing. So you would leave those people alone. And then the next step, once you've identified who's going to be in the program, would be, as you mentioned, having a workflow tool that is installed and integrated that everyone can use to make sure that care is coordinated or the coaching is coordinated. And then you had said retraining 
individuals because, uh, you know, as we were just talking about, it's pretty much of a whole culture shift. And I'm assuming that we're also adding to the team as well, because maybe in the former model, it's just nurses. Now we need social workers who may not have been involved in such a an integrated, coordinated process before. Is that typically how it works that these departments may have existed, but now we're pulling everybody together into one workflow? Yes. And in, in many cases, there are social workers and pharmacists and maybe health coaches that are part of an integrated team, but they're usually more in a consultative role to the RN care managers. Traditionally, Care managers are RNs, are, are registered nurses, and then they consult with these other individuals with, with ancillary skill sets on an as-needed basis. And the shift is really to where, no, the health coach, even though this person has heart failure, their issues and their barriers are really related to building lifestyle-related habits. And really, a health coach is more likely to be successful in helping them with that. And therefore, a health coach can be a care manager. So then, of course, you increase your staffing of health coaches and social workers if they're actually in primary roles as opposed to just supporting and consultative roles. So that is a a key piece. The other piece is, is, is the notion of just having one risk factor or one service gap or self care gap that you're going to focus on. And then you're going to close the case. You're only going to work on one issue at a time. And that is a big cultural change because care managers are used to kind of being able to pick and choose amongst someone's 20 different risk factor, uh, 20 different goals on their care plan, which area they feel like they have the most expertise in and focus where they're most comfortable. And instead saying, no, this is, it's just this one, just this one issue that we're working on now is also, it, it takes a real cultural shift in support for those care managers to be required to focus on that one thing because it may not be where where they're most comfortable working. That's where you have to give them training and support and clear redefinition of what success looks like in this new model. And do they also need all of the aforementioned parties? Do they need more tools in their toolbox? In the past, it might not have been such a priority to, for example, solve the transportation gap, actually solve it. So maybe whoever the sponsor is of this program actually wants to make the strategic alliance with Uber that everybody's talking about or actually have a car service or actually work with pharmacies to do something really at a very solve the problem level as opposed to refer the person somewhere level. Certainly there is an element of that. Although when that need for having more explicit tools in the toolbox is greatly reduced when instead of having a nurse, asking a nurse to figure out how to address a transportation issue, you ask a health coach or a social worker who's much more familiar with how do you get these services for people. That's kind of part and parcel core to the skill sets of a social worker. And so you don't need to give them as much support because they know how to access those kinds of resources. That's not to say that everyone is just left to their own devices, but you'd be surprised at how much just that process of pairing the skill set with the barrier or the issue helps with the solutioning. 
say you've got a patient that is enrolled in one of these programs at the insurance carrier level, and clearly they're seeing providers as well. There's the health system that that patient is actually receiving care at. Is there any advice that you would have for either the insurance carriers who be communicating with these local providers or the is there anything that a provider who is treating a patient who's enrolled in one of these programs needs to know? Oh, that's a great question. And yes, it's amazing how positive the response is from providers when they hear that there is someone working with their patient on especially those environmental, social, contextual issues that are creating barriers to the person's adherence to the provider's care plan. And there was an interesting study that came out recently where they gave providers a bunch of tools for identifying social determinant risk factors. And what they found was that many patients didn't feel like they wanted to take their doctor or their healthcare professional's time getting assistance on their social issues. They wanted that time spent on their medical issues. And providers who are often not very well equipped to address the social, environmental, contextual issues, if they know that someone else is working on those, they're just delighted. They, I mean, they feel supported as opposed to you know, there can be a fair bit of tension and friction between providers and payers over the administrative aspects of accessing the benefit or administering the benefit. But this is one area where payers and providers can really support each other in producing the best outcomes by addressing these more contextual and tactical aspects that are getting in the way of people being able to optimize their chronic care management. All the more reason for an insurance carrier to, to step up. Yes, it's a win-win for everyone, patient, provider, and, and payer. Indeed. So if someone is intrigued by this conversation and is interested in hearing more about the Access Point Health solution to facilitate the workflows involved that we have just been discussing, where can they go for that information? Well, certainly Access Point Health has a website, accesspointhealth.com. And uh, my contact is virginia.gurley at accesspointhealth.com. Dr. Virginia Gurley, I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.